Well, it's good to be back here again each year. It's always so refreshing to renew fellowship and in the gospel with all of you. I was thinking during the last hour while John was preaching, I think my first time at the John Bunyan Conference was uh, in March of uh, 1990, which would make this, I guess, can I count, 22 uh, Bunyan conferences that I've been to. Uh, back in those days, we met at the uh, Cowan uh, the Retreat Center just down the road from here. That for a number of years, I hosted it down where we are, and then back here in Lewisburg now. And one of the things I've been, I thought this while John was preaching, one of the things I've been impressed with all of those years uh, was when John Riesinger addresses a subject like the priesthood of Christ, or the atonement, or justification, or something like that, you just can't help but go away refreshed in the gospel. And I thought, boy, oh boy, he, he might not have been able to remember four of the three questions, <laughs> or whatever that was. But I'll tell you, brother, your grasp of the gospel is better than the rest of ours, and it is, it is just mightily refreshing. And I, I pray that the Lord will give you many more Bunyan conferences with us. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. If you see me wiping my eyes this evening, it might be that I am that moved by the truth of the message I'm preaching. It might be that I just have trouble with allergies this evening. You make your own choice. <laughs> this is the worst year in many years for that. Matthew chapter 28, where the title of the message this evening is the Great Commission in Redemptive Historical Perspective. Matthew chapter 28, I'll begin reading with verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, our hearts have been blessed this evening. Our hearts have been blessed by the ministry of the word today throughout to learn of the greatness of our Savior, to learn of the fullness of the salvation that he's given to us, to be reminded of the freeness of it, to be reminded of our great Savior. Surely there is nothing better for us, and surely there is no greater delight for us than to hear these things again rehearsed in our minds. We pray that this week you will refresh the hearts of your people in the gospel of your Son. And we ask that you would direct our attention now to this portion of your word and that you will open our minds and our hearts to see in it a new, new ground of appreciation and love for our great Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our Lord's parting command to his church has through the centuries been regarded as something that's especially I'm not sure what word to use especially sacred especially special something like that it's not that these words carry any more weight than any of his words but it might carry a little bit more pathos simply because we have realized through the centuries that these are his last words to the church. These are, in fact, his parting words or close to them. And more to the point, this passage provides for us Jesus' own directive to the church, defining our responsibilities and our reason for being here during this inter-advent time between his first coming and his second coming. 
Luke records Jesus speaking similarly just before Jesus' ascension. You remember in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, where Jesus says, You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, Jesus is saying something similar to that here, but here he couches the command in a context that's intended to sharpen our understanding of our responsibility and give meaning then to the work that we've been called to do. Now, I'm sure as many of you, if not most of you, have had pointed out uh, for you, you've seen that in verses 18 through 20, Jesus' words are really, the whole passage is governed by four universals, four occurrences of the word all. You'll see it in verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of, here's our second universal, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. There's our third universal. And then last, surely I am with you all the days, or as we have here, always, to the very end of the age. So we have these four universals. Among these four universals that we have here, the first provides for us the governing theme, and I think the governing idea of the passage. Again, that's in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. All authority, Jesus says, is his. Now this word authority is not simply power. It's not simply uh, muscle. It is the idea of an authorized power, a right to rule. Not just a rule, but a right to rule, an authorized power. We... We've had it illustrated like this. If a rhinoceros, a wild rhinoceros, were to be a let loose in this room, where do you think he could go? Wherever he wanted to. You've heard the old joke. He could go everywhere, anywhere he wanted to because, simply, he has more power than the rest of us. But he has no right here. At least most of us, I think, would agree to that. And so we would take whatever measures we needed to be rid of him as soon as we could. Maybe a better illustration. All growing up, my dad had his, uh, while I was growing up, my dad had his chair in the living room. Now, I could sit in that chair, but not if he was there. Now, dad would come in, I'm up and I'm out of the chair. Now, why do you think that is? Is it just because dad could whip me? Well, I suppose that's part of it, especially when I was young. But you know, to the day he died, when he was 80, we could go to see him at his house, we'd go to the living room. You can sit in Dad's chair, but only until he got there. Why? Because authority was his. It was rightfully his place, and no one ever questioned that. And Jesus is saying something like that, only, of course, on a grander scale here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. I have the right to rule universally. Now, on one level, we already knew that. This is, of course, God the Son speaking, the second person of the triune Godhead, the Creator, the one who owns everything that is simply by right of creation. And so, of course, all authority and in heaven and on earth is his. He's the creator, the sovereign ruler. But you'll notice here that that's not exactly what Jesus has in mind here. Notice how he says it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. And we have to be careful here to notice in the context how Jesus can come to say something like this. We have to notice not just who is speaking, but when he is speaking and in what capacity he is speaking. 
This is the Son of God himself speaking, to be sure, but more specifically now, this is the crucified, risen Son of God. This is the mediator who has come to accomplish the work of redemption. And he has come and fulfilled that work which climaxed on the cross, where he took the place of sinners and bore their sin and bore their curse in full. And in testimony, public declaration that God had accepted his death as full payment for the sins of his people, God raised him from the dead. And now we are post-passion, post-resurrection. And in this capacity now, Jesus standing as the mediator who has come to do the work of salvation, has completed that work fully, and now he stands and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Standing in the wake of his completed work then, he claims to have universal Authority. This is a reward that has been given to me, he says. This is something I have earned. I have universal authority because I've achieved it in my work. And so in other words then, Jesus' lordship is now twofold. He has a lordship that is inherently his because of who he is as God the Son. But he also has an, a lordship that has been achieved an earned lord, lordship, if you will. And the biblical writers are very careful to speak about this in many times. And of course, John was working into my territory at the end of his last session when he was speaking of Jesus' lordship the same. But this is a frequent emphasis, especially in the New Testament. We find some glimpses of it in the Old Testament as well, that Jesus has a second kind of lordship now, one that has been achieved and earned by virtue of his successful work of redemption. Let me just list a couple of passages you might look at to see that. You can look at them more fully on your own. One in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 53, verses 12 and 13. There we find that Jesus has taken the iniquities of his people and there and it says therefore therefore because of his successful work god will dis, uh, divide for him the spoils and a portion with the strong daniel chapter 7 which was mentioned earlier today as well we have this strange figure coming on the clouds before the ancient of days the son of man comes before God himself as though he has a right to be there. He's not someone cowering before God. He's a heavenly figure himself. And yet he's called the Son of Man who comes on the clouds. Well, who does that? Is he God? Is he man? Who is this figure? And then we find as he comes to the Ancient of Days, the Ancient of Days gives him a kingdom. And Jesus doubtless is referring to that here, and he, has re he referred to that, you remember, at his trials as well, that he has earned this. This is a kingdom that has been given to him. Probably the most famous passage in this regard is Philippians chapter 2, where our Lord is described as one who was for all eternity in equality with God, and yet humbled himself, took the form of a man, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He has accomplished this lordship by reason of his successful redeeming work. Another famous one is in Acts chapter 2 where Peter tells the crowd that God has exalted this one whom they have crucified and he has made him Lord and Christ. You can find more of it in Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus was made a little lower uh, than the angels for the suffering of death and then crowned with glory and honor. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 22. Jesus has gone into the heavens, angels and authorities having been made subject to him. 
Well, this is the authority that our Lord is claiming here then. In one sense, he has always possessed all authority in heaven and on earth. But here he's speaking with words of triumph and success. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have finished the work. I have completed the assignment the Father has given me to do in completing redemption. I have won it and This authority now is mine. In other words then, in the final verses here of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew returns to a theme that was introduced in the very first verse of his Gospel. You remember how he begins the Gospel of Matthew? The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. That is, this one who is David's greater son, who has been promised. This one who's been promised a kingdom. He's introduced at the beginning of the book as the king. He's worshipped as a king by great ones from the east. And now we come to the end of the book. And Matthew returns to his theme. And he has finished his work. And now claims all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the promised king. The new age has dawned. There's this great turning point then in redemptive history that Jesus has entered into his kingship. To put it in the language of some of the older theologians, the session, the session of Jesus has begun. He is seated now in the heavenlies and enthroned as king. Now, of course, there's the now and the not yet. Jesus is the king. All authority is his. And so, in the book of Acts, we find the Apostle Paul described as going everywhere preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom is now. And yet at the same time, we're instructed to pray, thy kingdom come. And the great hope of the church is that day is coming when Christ will return in all of his glory and bring his kingdom to its grand consummation and we will see every knee bow before the Lord Jesus and confess him as Lord and so there is a now and a not yet to his kingly rule but that doesn't take away from the fact that there is this present aspect of Jesus kingship and he says all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. It may not be evident at every turn that it is so. One day it will. But still it is so. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. And as John pointed out in his sermon uh, last hour, the message of the early church was not the message of the contemporary church. Make Jesus Lord. The message of the early church was Jesus is Lord. And you will bow your knee to this king, either now willingly and in blessing, or in a time to come in defeat and in destruction. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is Lord. And his lordship you will acknowledge. Isn't it good to know? Jesus is Lord. There is no power, there is no stray atom of authority anywhere that does not belong to the Lord Jesus. And so he says, he is Lord over all powers, wherever they are assembled, demonic or otherwise. Now, the question that comes up at this point is, what is the purpose of this power? Why would Jesus announce that he has this authority? What's the point of that authority? In what way does he exercise that authority? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, so what's the purpose of that newly achieved authority? Perhaps the easiest statement of it is in John chapter 17. Why don't we take a moment to look at that? In John chapter 17. John 17, verse 2. In verse 1, he says, remember this is on the eve of his crucifixion. This is his high priestly prayer. 
And he says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son. Strange language about the cross, isn't it? Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people. Why? That he might give eternal life to all of those that you have given him. He has the authority to dispense eternal life. Jesus speaks like this in Matthew chapter 11. You remember where he speaks about his unshared sonship. No one knows the father except the, the son. And he to whom the son chooses to reveal him. We have a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 5. You remember where the redeemed stand before the throne and they're waiting for someone who is worthy to open the seals, to break the seals and open the scroll. The scroll evidently being God's will and testament for his saving his purposes for humanity and his purposes in history, his purposes in salvation and judgment as it's carried out through the book of Revelation. Who is worthy to open the, the, the scroll? And they weep because no one is worthy. And then do you remember someone comes to John, an elder, and says, Don't weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And he turns and he looks and there's the lamb. And then you remember the whole place breaks out in praise and says, You are worthy to open the seals. Why? Because you were slain and purchased us to God by your blood. By his work he has achieved this lordship and this authority to save. And it belongs to him and it belongs to him alone. And again this brings us back to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. God promised to Abraham that in his seed all of the families of the world would be blessed. And he promised to David that his son would rule on the throne in universal blessing over all of the nations. And Jesus is simply saying, now that is fulfilled. This is the age of blessing. This is the age of my rule. And salvation will be dispensed now accordingly. Now all of that, I think, positions us well to understand the significance of the second universal. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That is to say, notice the, the therefore. Because Jesus has achieved this universal saving lordship. Because we have passed now this centerpiece of history, because he is the successful mediator in accomplishing God's salvation, then go now to all of the nations. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Therefore, take the message of Jesus to all of the nations. Put another way, because the saving lordship of Jesus Christ is universal, then he must be proclaimed universally. No restrictions. No longer is it in Israel only. All the nations. And you can't help but see a stark contrast between Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Matthew chapter 10. You remember in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out on their maiden voyage. And here they go out to do their evangelistic work. And he says, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And now he's saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go to all the nations. No longer is the gospel hemmed up in, in, in Israel. But this is a word to go to all of the nations. Jesus spoke like this in so many words in Matthew chapter 12. When he spoke of his work of casting out demons. And they accused him of being a son of Satan. And he comes back with his arguments. And you remember the point of it all. I've come in and I've bound the strong man. And I'm plundering his house. And this, this world does not belong to him anymore. This world is mine. Take the gospel 
to the nations. The Apostle Paul spoke to the pagan Gentile philosophers in the book of Acts. You remember at Athens. And he says God. He doesn't just say God commands all men everywhere to repent. He speaks of Jesus and he says God now commands all men everywhere to repent. This then is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is Luke chapter 24, verse 47, where the Lord Jesus himself says, Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. This is John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. God so loved the world that he sent his son to save it. To save the world. This is John chapter 10, where Jesus says, Other sheep I have that are not of this fold. This is John chapter 12 where Jesus says, if, the, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. This is Romans chapters 9 through 11 where Paul argues that if the setting aside of Israel meant the gospel goes to the world, what will do the ingathering of Israel be but life from the dead? And he pictures this great advance of the gospel. And of course, this is Revelation chapter 5, where the redeemed standing before the throne praise the Lamb who has purchased them to God by his blood out of every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. So Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, it is uniquely his. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations. Now before we move to the third universal, let me draw a couple of observations from what we've seen so far. He's telling us here to make disciples. And let's draw a few observations about discipleship from all of this. First of all, a disciple, first and foremost, is one who has come to terms with the lordship of Jesus. A disciple, first and foremost, is one who has come to terms with the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is foundational. A disciple is one who has come to Christ with his knees bent and his head bowed low in submission to him. This was the message of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the message of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, a disciple is one who has come to Jesus with his knees bent, acknowledging his authority and surrendering to his lordship over him. This is basic to what a disciple is, a recognition that we are subordinate to the Lord Jesus. You might know that the word disciple literally means a learner. And so it does. But I think if you trace down the usage of the word in the New Testament, the word disciple is not meant to mean simply a learner, but what we might say a follower. He learns from Jesus, all right. But he learns and he obeys. And he follows. That is what a disciple is. So number one, a disciple, first and foremost, is one who has come to terms with the lordship of Jesus Christ. Number two, discipleship requires disciple-making. Discipleship requires disciple-making. The command is, go and make disciples. It is binding on all of Jesus' disciples to make others what they themselves are. Disciples. He is the king. He's the world's only king. And our obligation is to go to the world and tell them of their king and call them to surrender to their king and to tell them that he has offered terms of peace. But they must surrender to him. Now, let me say here just in passing that there are those who have learned just enough Greek to learn, to learn and notice that the word go, translated here, is a participle. 
And so they are quick to tell us that it shouldn't be translated as a command, but it should be translated as a participle, having gone, or something like that. Having gone, therefore, make disciples. And the emphasis is on disciple-making, not going. It always strikes me with the people who would say that, why it is all of these Greek experts who have translated the scripture and all of its versions, all translated as an, as an imperative. Go! If they'd have studied Greek a little bit further, they'd have learned of an attendant circumstance participle, which takes the force of the main verb. The command is go and make disciples. And brothers, let me tell you, say it, we Calvinists need to learn this better. It's not enough to hang out our shingle and say, come. The command is go, and we have got to find ways to be more intentional in disciple-making and taking the message of Jesus' universal lordship to the world and to our neighbors. So a disciple is one who has come to terms with the lordship of Jesus. Number two, discipleship requires disciple-making. The third lesson is very closely related to that, and this will lead us to our next universal. The message of the disciple is that of the universal authority of Jesus. The message of the disciple is that of the universal authority of Jesus. Notice the train of thought. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. The sense seems to be because Jesus is the universal king, then go everywhere and bring men and women into submission to him. Make disciples of all because all authority is his. In other words, then our commission is to call men and women into submission to their king and they are obligated to listen to us because we are speaking for their king whether they recognize it or not yet we are speaking for their king and we should be careful to notice how this speaks to contemporary pluralism as well all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Americans, Asians, Africans, black, white, no matter what the culture, Jesus is their king. And Jesus commands that we call them into submission to him. And this is why then Peter will say later, neither is there salvation in any other there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Well, then this brings us to our third universal. Number one, all authority. Number two, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And then verse 20, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded. Notice, first of all, the focus here of our teaching. What is it we are to teach? All things that Jesus has commanded. Now, there are all kinds of implications here that this crowd would love in regard to New Covenant theology. Jesus is presenting himself as the climax of God's revelation. When you teach them how to behave and how to live, you teach them what I have said. You teach them to obey all things that I have commanded. His lordship must be evident in our teaching. It is his teaching that is the authoritative standard by which we teach men and women to live. And this again is a long-standing theme in the scriptures. Reaches back at least as far as Deuteronomy chapter 18 where Moses speaks of this prophet like him who will come and we will be held accountable to listen to him and hear him and to do as he has said. That is echoed throughout the prophets, this one who is coming to bring God's law to the nations and to the islands of the world. We find that particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, particularly in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says he's come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he gives us a series of examples. You've heard it say, but I say unto you, and over and again, there's this 
emphasis on Jesus' authority. That's the emphasis at the end of chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' authority. His authority. One of the great displays of that in the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew chapter 17 where Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember his, his face shines and there appears with him Moses and Elijah and in Peter's not so great moment he says let's build a booth for each of you one for Elijah and Moses one for you. And they are presented then as the foil against which God from heaven speaks. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And in all of this, this is the king declaring his exclusive and his binding authority. My word is the rule of the realm. Notice the extent of his authority. The extensiveness of this command, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. No part can be left out. None can be ignored. He's the Lord. He's the King. All of his word is binding. He doesn't say here, just get them to believe what I've said. Teach them to obey what I have said. And here our Lord himself puts the lie to that awful distinction that has been made in contemporary Christianity between a believer and a disciple. A man can be a believer but not a disciple. And at some later point you want to become a disciple. This is part of the evangelistic enterprise. To call men and women in submission to the Lord Jesus. Teaching them to obey all that he has said. And so we have here the call of the king to come before him in submission. And he says, you take this word to the nations. Tell them that he has accomplished the work of salvation. That he alone is the world's savior. And therefore you must come to him with your knee bent and your head bowed low. He is the world's only saving king. And so that shapes our enterprise. We are not simply getting people to believe a certain number of propositions or to accept Jesus as one of the things they believe in, add him to their pantheon, so to speak. But they must, in faith, come to recognize his unique lordship overall. Well, this in turn defines for us the significance of baptism. Verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You might think, why does he command this ritual at a time like this? What is the significance of baptism that he would include this in what we call, I think rightly so, the Great Commission? What is so significant about it that it should be included here? And the answer, of course, is that baptism pictures the disciple. Baptism is a picture of our profession that by the authority of the risen Christ, we have been brought under the, into submission to the triune God. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's a baptism into his dominion, a baptism into his lordship. And so it's the outward expression of our submission to his sovereign rule. The shorthand expression for this in the book of Acts, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Baptized in the name of Christ. It is into the name of Jesus then we are baptized. This is not John's baptism. This is not Essene baptism. This is not the Pharisees' baptism. not the baptism of mystery religions. This is baptism into the name of Jesus because by Jesus we have been brought under the sovereign rule of the triune God and that is what baptism is intended to picture this is what the apostle Paul teaches us about baptism in Romans chapter 6 it is a picture of the death and the resurrection of the believer himself in union with Christ we've died to that old life and been raised to a new life I remember, well, this goes back many years. This is back in the 70s, I guess, in the late 70s. I was at Bob Jones University. And the first African-American ever to preach at Bob Jones came there one week and spoke in chapel. 
And when he got up to speak, of course, he made much of that. Said that he had come to change the complexion of things around here. Uh, things like that. And after some appropriate words of introduction and whatnot, he says, open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 6. And he said, the title of my message this morning is, I'm still a slave. I've just changed masters. And he expounded the passage very, very well. This is Paul's point there, that we are servants now, not of sin, but of Christ. And that's what's pictured in our baptism. That old life has been, has been put to death in Christ. And in union with Christ, we've been raised to a new existence. This life is his. And our baptism is, in a sense, our pledge of allegiance. We belong to Christ. We've been brought under his authority. We've acknowledged his lordship. And we intend from here on to live for him. This very simply is why the early church did not baptize infants. This is not what baptism is. The only baptism our Lord endorsed was baptism for disciples. And again, the point is, we are a church of disciples. We give evidence to his sovereign lordship in that we live in submission to it. It's confessed in our baptism and it's evidenced in our life of obedience to all of his commands. And so our message is that of the authority of Jesus Christ. A call to submission to the world's king. We are not then to mitigate the gospel to make it more palatable for people. It's one of the curses of our age. We are to take the message of his soul-saving lordship to the world and call men and women into submission to him. And that is why the note of the preaching in the book of Acts was repent, repent. Or as Paul characterizes it himself, our message in Acts 20, he says, our message is repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to the Lord Jesus alone. Our Lord's kingly rule is universal, and all men everywhere are accountable to him. Did you know that one day you will stand before Jesus Christ to give account. And this is the message then we take. That he is every man's king and judge. And so then the Christians, Christians are on a disciple making. Missionary enterprise. We are to take the message of the universal king to all of the tribes of the earth. And that leaves us then with this final universal, verse 20, and surely I am with you all the days to the very end of the age. I'm with you all the days. C.F.D. Moole in his book, Idioms of New Testament Greek, demonstrates that this expression all the days is intended to convey the idea of throughout the whole of every day. Throughout the whole of every day. That is, the eye is not on just the horizon at the very end. But throughout the whole of every day, I will be with you. And that to the end of the age. Christ has pledged himself to continued fellowship with his disciples. And because all authority in heaven and on earth is his, nothing ever can interfere with it. Now think of this little phrase, with you. Surely I am with you all the days. Does that phrase, with you, ring a bell? All through the Old Testament, we find that expression over and over again. This was God's promise to his covenant people. I will be with you. I will be with you. Most often it assumes 
opposition, danger of some kind. It assumes life in this satanic sphere. And so God says to Isaac, I will be with you. He says to Jacob, I will be with you. If Joseph prospers in Egypt, it is because the Lord was with Joseph. God sends Moses into Egypt and assures him, I will be with you. He says to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. He says to Israel, as they go into their land in Deuteronomy chapter 31, remember the Lord your God will be with you. The angel of the Lord sends Gideon against the Midianites and he says to assure him, the Lord is with you. God's promise to his people Israel's, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. It is a promise of God's comforting, protecting, and enabling presence, even in the face of danger, the face of opposition, and enemies of all kinds. It is the promise of his protecting presence, his comforting presence and his enabling presence. And here the Lord Jesus sends his disciples on their assignment and he promises them, I'll be with you throughout the whole of every day, all the way to the end of the age. And that is all the more significant when we understand that in terms of the characterization of the world that the scriptures give us. The world is an evil place. The world is settled in its opposition to God. The relationship of the world to the church is one of opposition and enmity and conflict. We find expressions of that all through the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 2, the lost, before they come to Christ, all of us alike walk in lockstep with Satan himself. Ephesians chapter 6, we're reminded our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. Satan has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe. We find this graphically portrayed for us in Revelation chapter 12. You remember where the dragon is cast out of heaven to earth, and he comes to earth, and he's waiting for this woman to give birth to the child, and he's waiting to devour the child as soon as he's born. And the child is born, and he escapes to heaven, and the, this dragon is in this furious rampage because he knows his time is short, and he chases the people of the Messiah off into the wilderness. That's the world we live in. When we read through the book of Acts, the early history of the church, it is continuously one of opposition. Throughout the history of the church, the gospel has made its advance in the face of opposition. This assignment that our Lord is giving his disciples here, this assignment that he's given us here, is not one that will be met with eager reception. But there is this, I will be with you throughout the whole of every day, even to the end of the age. Without this promise, where would the church be? Without this promise, how would the disciples survive? I often think of that hymn when I read through this and think on it. Without thee, I cannot live. Without thee, I dare not die. Jesus says, I will be with you throughout the whole of every day. How else could the disciples succeed in this mission? Face it, people don't want a king. They want, don't want to be told that they must bow in submission to anyone. And beyond all of that, what about all of the discouragements that lie ahead for them in life in a fallen world? What about the sickness and what about the disease yourself and in your family? And what about death? And what about all of those temptations and all of those discouragements and all of those spiritual and moral and physical dangers that we face? How in the world will we ever survive in this mission? How will it ever be carried out fully that all of the nations will hear about their king 
Answer, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth is mine, and I, and no one less, I am with you throughout the whole of every day, even to the end of the age. This is, in short, the great promise of the Holy Spirit. I will not leave you orphans. I'll come to you. Or in shorter words, this is Paul's, the promise that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful. With that temptation, make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. I am with you. I'm with you. And it is for this reason that the older theologians spoke so often of the church militant. The church militant. We're on the march, pursuing and fulfilling the advance of the great king. And for the same reason, the older theologians would speak of the church of the future as the church triumphant. We will make it. We will carry out this commission. It will be successful. And we will make it because Jesus has said, I will be with you throughout the whole of every day. And this is the one to whom all authority belongs. And no one can interfere with his purpose. Because the Lord Jesus is with us, then... We carry out his advance, the advance of his kingdom with a sense of excitement, optimism at least. The church will succeed in carrying out this great commission. We know that because we've read the whole book and in the last chapter we're told of the success that we have. And one day in the end, we who are his will be gathered together to his throne from every nation and kindred and tribe and tongue under heaven. And there will be one fold and one shepherd and with one voice we will sing praises to our great king who alone has earned it. And there we'll be safe forever in the presence of our king who by his blood has bought us and has brought us to God. Amen.